Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, my dear friends, this is the 14th sermon in our sermon series on the letter of James. And this evening's study is James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. James begins his third theme in the second half of his letter of the transformed life of the believer. You've seen how he has examined the issues among the wealthy and poor members of the congregation, how he's explored the sin of partiality, underlying the evils that follow jealousy and rivalry. He's pointed out how some Jewish believers have allowed jealousy and rivalry to grow into covetousness and quarreling, a very serious matter, indeed life-threatening, for the fellowship of believers in a local church. James offers a diagnosis that it is due to prayerlessness. They have been living as pragmatic atheists, and so the consequence has been their selfishness, their desire for what others have. Because, you see, with prayerlessness, if you lose the blessedness and joy of fellowship with God, and then everything in that fellowship is lost, and what was secondary now becomes primary once again. They lack the satisfaction gained from prayer. So their envy grows, and they have become more willing to tear one another down. James gathers all this together in calling this spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery is friendship with the values and motivations of the world, rather than friendship with God. The danger is that when believers live as if they are non-Christians, the time comes that the believer lives so consistently and so characteristically in such non-Christian ways that he or she no longer has any twinge of conscience in remorse. Indeed, one has to question whether any true conversion has occurred at all. Spiritual adultery. Well, James continues now in this theme of the transformed life by union with Christ. This time he warns against a lack of synchronicity. Synchronicity. S-Y-N-C-H-R-O-N-I-C-I-T-Y. Now, what do I mean by synchronicity? Well, I was reminded as I was studying James this week of theme and variation in jazz music. Bill Evans, my favorite jazz pianist, was interviewed in 77 by another, Marion McPartland, on her NPR program, Piano Jazz. Now, I have to explain that Bill Evans was the jazz pianist's jazz pianist the master that they all looked to and influenced so many young artists of the time. And he did not disappoint in this interview. He gave a master class. He spoke at length on how he processes jazz piano. He practices one tune for 24 hours. 
to learn its structure at the deepest level. And then he explained how he chooses players for his jazz trios that have to be like him in the same approach. They have to be competent in their instrument with the same kind of dedication and dedicate themselves to understanding the tune's structure. With this in hand, Evans said that they can dedicate themselves to a deeper listening, to synchronize their improved playing, improvising with the pattern of the structure set by Evans as the leader. With each layer of knowing the structure, of listening, and of synchronicity, new music was born. No artist played on their own. They were synchronized together. And that was the source of what they call the kick, the energy in the creative act of music that both Evans and McPartland agreed is jazz. Well, you see, James urges us to seek out and to learn that same synchronicity in the rhythms of God. He takes our calendar and lays it out before us and asks some hard questions and underlines important principles. First, we have to understand where do we go for the structure? Well, I think we might know that by now. It's God's revealed word, the scripture. We must give it important and careful study. Next, the transformed Christian believer is keeping time with God. They're synchronized to him, not with their watches or calendars or schedules, but rather synchronized with his revealed will and providence as the structure, the scripture, reveals to us. And so, we would expect James to use his context to explain the same. Here, he focuses on the wealthy members of the congregation, the merchants, the ones who, in fleeing Jerusalem due to religious persecution as Jewish believers, they had settled quickly in their new homes, in these new cities, because they had already had business dealings there in the past. So James begins now by giving us four principles. The first is in verses 13 through the first part of 14. And the principle is, do not neglect life's unpredictability. Do not neglect life's unpredictability. This is what he says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, you will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You can imagine the scene of the day, can't you? The report has come back to their home office of the potential of new markets, a long-established trade routes they already have. So they begin to strategize and to plan how they're going to take advantage of these new sales opportunities. The strategy to expand their business, to turn a profit, to make money. The increasing market share brings them personal wealth. Their own self-interest is at the center. We can see the simple logic in this, can't we? 
We know that we all need an income that is the fruit of our labor. So why would James single out this particular example? Because the planning the merchants have done have neglected God's providence. They're not looking at the structure at all, are they? Rather, James reminds them that life is unpredictable. There are assumptions these merchants make that has demonstrated that they've drifted into a kind of self-sufficiency. There's a reliance on human reasoning, which is limited by what they do not know, namely what tomorrow will bring. There's a self-assurance that what worked in the towns up to now will work in our new base of operations too. They've not taken into account God's providence and plan at all. Now, I want to be clear here that James is not saying here that we are to make no plans. Rather, to live in humility, humbly. I saw this particularly for the first time in the diary of Robert Murray McShane. Now, he was a Scot, a pastor who died at 29 years old. He wrote this. It has always been my aim, and it is my prayer, to have no plans with regard to myself. No plans, no strategy of mission, no calendar for appointments and meetings. No, that's not what he meant, because he goes on to say this. Well assured as I am, that the place where the Savior sees meet to place me, must always be the best place for me. In other words, he first asks, what are God's plans according to his revealed will in his scriptures? Therefore, how will I organize my day around what I've learned from God's word? What is God's plan? That is the most important plan. That is meat, the best place for me to be. So James' first principle is to not neglect life's unpredictability, but rather to ask this question first. What is God's plan for a believer like me today? Now his second principle is in the second half of 14. Recognize life's brevity. Recognize life's brevity. He writes, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, you can't get clearer than that, can you? We've all seen this, haven't we? A mist that rises in the morning dampness. You go out and there may be a a weather warning on the radio as you're getting ready. So you get in your car and you put the headlights on. And as you drive, you notice how the sun starts to poke through here and there. Perhaps it lingers the mist in a low point or at the crossing of a bridge. By the time you get to their destination in less than an hour, it's gone. It's vanished. You turn the headlights off. James is saying a mist. Your life is like that. 
Now, why would he write this? Well, it's because no one thinks like that. What do we do? We say, I've got time. I've got plenty of time. I'm only 64. I have plenty of time ahead of me. No, 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 not me. But then we learn something disturbing, something unsettling, someone our age. And we pause just for a moment and we said, what? They've died? So-and-so? How did that happen? That slight uptake of voice, you know, and tone? Why do we do that? We're thinking it could be me. You know, this past week, I visited our oldest member on her 95th birthday. And you know, there are two questions that she will always ask me during my visits this past year. You know what the first one is? How did I get so old, Father Henry? And you know what the second one is? How did I get here so fast? 95 years old. And she's asking, how did I get here so fast? What's James telling us? This life is not long, but the life to come is long. We plan without reference to eternity. James is being careful here. He's telling us we're distracted. We've sought a different treasure, the earthly one, rather than the Christ-centered treasure that you and I truly possess in him. James recalls a biblical principle here, doesn't he? Believers are created for eternity. All human beings are. That's our purpose. What's the purpose of humanity? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We live for eternity, don't we? Now, C.S. Lewis wrote this in his book, Mere Christianity. It's a longish quote, but it's good to hear in its entirety. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, who set out on foot for the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Recognize life's unpredictability. Recognize life's brevity. What's the third? It's in verse 15. 
it is foolish to exclude God's will. This is what he writes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He's telling us it's foolish to exclude God's will from our lives. Remember now, what James does not mean here is using the phrase like a good luck charm. If God wills this or that, like some anxious mantra, knocking on wood, tossing salt over your shoulder because you spilled it. This is not a neurotic, fearful, empty repetition. It's much more simple, but it's much more profound. What do I mean by that? Let me ask you a simple question. Do you pray the Lord's Prayer? Well, I know you do, because it's in our worship on a Sunday. But do you ever do that during the week? How about in the Lord's Prayer where it says this, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is that true for you? Do you truly desire God's will to be done for you? You know, this weekend is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's public declaration that he will stand on scripture rather than Pope or councils of the Roman Catholic Church on this day in 1521. It changed the world. But you know where it began? It began when Martin Luther went to Rome 11 years earlier in 1510. He went there as a courier for his abbot, but he also so looked forward to making pilgrimage in the holy city. When he saw the towers and steeples of the great churches there, and he knelt down, raised his hands, and said, Hail to you, holy Rome, thrice holy, for the blood of the martyrs shed here. Well, every good Roman Catholic monk, when they visited Rome, they would often visit a place called the Scala Sancta. That's the Latin name for a special set of stairs. They're the holy stairs. According to Roman Catholic tradition, these were the steps that led up to the Roman Praetorium of Pontius Pilate in Jerusalem, which Jesus Christ ascended on his way to judgment on the hands of the Roman governor. It was said the stairs were brought to Rome in the 300s A.D., Well, the Roman Catholic Church taught that by climbing these steps on your knees, reciting at each step the Lord's Prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, would strike nine years off of purgatory. So Luther went to the stairs. But he froze every time he said the Lord's Prayer. Every time he said the sentence, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because in his heart he knew he did not want that. It caused a crisis of faith that pushed him to the scriptures and later led him to rediscover how we are justified by God's gift in Christ through faith. James is doing the same thing here to us. He's applying pressure to that pressure point. To You pray to our Heavenly Father that His will will be done 
in your life. How obviously do you embrace this? How clearly do you embrace God's revealed will from the scriptures? Will I follow the Lord Jesus Christ in this? For after all, did not he say when tempted of the devil that a believer would feed on every word that comes from the mouth of God? Will I make decisions that seek to glorify God? To exalt the wisdom of God? So James has set three principles. Do not neglect life's unpredictability. Recognize life's brevity. Avoid the folly of excluding God's will. And now the last, beware self-sufficiency. That's number four. It's in verses 16 and 17. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You see what he's doing here with boasting? That's the key. He's writing to the people there in this local church. Look at you. Self-made men. Self-made women. Independent. Self-determined. Proud. Arrogant. You think you can plan your life without any dependence on the revealed will of God. You boast in your repeated acts of arrogance and pride as you just turn away from God's word and say, No, I know best. What James is saying is that this specific type of boasting in one's independence begins in a sinful heart. And it is sin. The boastful attitude of these business people illustrates what it means to be a friend of the world. They're more concerned with their personal wealth, their own strategy and plan, than with humility before God. So James says to them, here's the thing, merchant. That spirit of self-sufficiency. You're not even aware that that's what you're doing. But what about us, my dear friend? What about you? We may have failed God a thousand times. It's usually because we're chained as a friend of the world. We're addicted to the world. Who will set me free? Well, there's good news. Consider Zacchaeus, the wee little man, as we used to sing in the UK. The man who was successful, possessed a mountain of wealth he had gained by being the best at extorting money from his fellow Jews. But something was going on in the conscience of Zacchaeus. He heard that Jesus was coming to town, so being short of stature, he climbed a sycamore tree to perhaps catch a glimpse of him above the heads of the crowd. But what happened? The Lord Jesus stopped and looked up. He knew where Zacchaeus was. My dear friend, he knows where you are. And what did he say? Zacchaeus, come down, for today salvation comes to your house. 
and Zacchaeus came down and welcomed Jesus into his home and into his heart. And he was free at last. He was no longer chained as a friend of the world. And what does he say? Master, help me give away my wealth. He was free. Jesus sets us free. My dear friend, Jesus sets you free. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church. Ancient Truth. Real People. New Life.